Welcome to Stories from the Skin Track on The Caroline Gleick Show, a special four-part series to help you learn about avalanche and mountain safety through the personal experiences and stories of four special guests. We will be talking about close calls and fatalities, tips and tricks on getting into backcountry skiing and splitboarding, climate change, inclusion, mentorship, and much more. I'm excited to introduce you to my first guest, Bruce Tremper. Bruce is one of the top avalanche experts in the U.S. He's the author of several well-known books about avalanche safety, former director of the Utah Avalanche Center, and an avid photographer, skier, and outdoorsman who I have personal experiences and stories with that we'll chat about in today's episode. Welcome, Bruce. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've always just, I mean, I think one of the first, I one of my first, you know, learning about avalanches and stuff. I guess we might as well just dive into it and go right to the beginning. Um, so I first heard your name when I was 15 years old when I came to Utah shortly after my half-brother Martin had died in the avalanche. And I think you walked with my family up to the spot in Stairs Gulch where he was recovered. Yes, I remember it well. Yeah. And, you know, I made several trips up there uh, to that accident site. And I can't remember which trip it was that I went up with you folks. And then after we met um, and talked there, did I go and climb upstairs Gulch after that? I don't I don't remember that part. Um, it was such a blur uh, that time for me. So you may have. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, because I think I visited up there like three different times. Um, maybe Maybe more, but one of those... Uh, I just, you know, I had my crampons and ice axes and put the skis on the back of the pack and just climbed upstairs gulch to to take a look at it. And it was several days after the accident because I had to wait for things to cool down mm -hmm. um, because uh, avalanches were still coming down. It was a big wet slide. It was actually a glide avalanche, as we call them, um, and um, very unusual avalanche yeah. for, for Utah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, so I was 15 years old and Martin, he had taught me how to ski and ski powder. And he was taught me how to tie a figure eight knot and how to climb. And we'd go backpacking in the winds. And he was such a big inspiration. Like he really lit a fire for me to become an outdoors woman and a backcountry skier. And so before I had ever really gone on a tour, I had this really horrible experience in my family and just seeing you know, losing a sibling, um, it really, it was a, it was a hard way to start my, my, uh, backcountry ski career. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that would have turned almost anyone back. So I was surprised to meet you a number of years later and you were already a, you know, a budding professional athlete. Well, it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> I, I don't know. It had to have, yeah. I it was really hard for me. I'd like to talk more about his accident, but shortly after he was killed, I moved to Utah, and you know, I I really wanted to get into backcountry skiing, but I was forbidden by my parents from doing it. And so then, when I turned eighteen, I would slowly like tiptoe into the side country from the resort, but every time I would go for a tour, I just like had the vision of his hands at his funeral and they were just completely crushed black and blue from the force of, of, from the trauma. And so it was really hard for me. I had to take like such little baby steps to building my dreams of becoming a backcountry skier and ski mountaineer. Yeah. I, I can feel for you. Yeah. <laughs> Most people have just the opposite experience. They get out there and they're backcountry skiing and they're jumping off of cornices and they're just going crazy. And, and because they don't realize the danger, they, it's, you know, you're in the ignorance is bliss stage. And then after, you know, you, there's a couple of close calls. And then especially after a friend dies in an avalanche, then you're finally ready to listen. You, you've, you know, you've been scared straight and then you're finally ready to take an avalanche class. That's how most people uh, come into it and you came into it from the opposite direction. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a hard place to start because I think just seeing also what it put my family through, you know, my poor parents, my poor dad, he is still grieving and mourning the loss of his son. And, 
And Martin's wife was pregnant at the time. And one of the more gratifying experiences of my adult life now was taking his son, my nephew, for a backcountry ski tour of Grizzly Gulch when he was 16. So wow. yeah, it comes full circle. But I wanted to, t- to see if you could speak more to the actual avalanche that killed him. You spoke a little bit about the glide, but... Um, yeah, and it was the it was very late in the season. It was April twenty eighth. Is that right? Yeah, I believe that um, was the date. You know, and I pulled out my notes uh, last night. Luckily, I keep these notebooks uh, have for years and years, where I you know put down the day's activities and everything. So I, lo- I went back and looked it up, uh, so I could get the timeline right because I couldn't remember exactly you know what happened when. So uh, it was. Uh, late in the season, the end of April, uh, I was. We were just about ready to um, shut down the Avalanche Center. I shouldn't say we because all the other forecasters are gone by you know mid-April. They're off on their summer, their spring vacations. They're headed to a summer job, and we usually shut down the Avalanche Center around then, around Easter. So I was still just putting out uh, intermittent uh, avalanche advisories, and then you know fact. That day, I think it was on a Saturday that he was killed, if I'm not mistaken. But after that weekend, I was just going to, you know, quit doing the forecast. So I was really looking forward to shutting that down. And then wham, this happened. Uh, and what happened, it was very warm. There was, it was a lot of snow. It kept snowing till near the end of April. And then it got really, really warm. And... Um, I put out an avalanche advisory the day before, probably, and I'm guessing that Martin did hear that advisory before he went up there. There was no way to know, but um, I'm assuming that he did. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> just like any time as an avalanche forecaster, you go back and reread your advisory about 2,000 times, and you say, "What could I have said differently?" You know, and uh, that could have made a difference. And I certainly did with that. And you know, I wish that I would have explicitly said in the advisory, this is obviously not the time to go up someplace like Stairs Gulch, you know, because there's avalanches coming down everywhere. And there was very few people going out in the first place. I just, it just never crossed my mind that somebody would be going up. You know, Stairs Gulch is really huge, steep. It's 4,000 vertical feet of really steep terrain and avalanches come down there a lot. It's kind of the epitome of the most dangerous avalanche terrain in, in Utah. And yeah. so usually in the spring, nobody goes up there because they know that avalanches can come down pretty much any time, um, especially when it warms up like that. So it just never crossed my mind. Yeah. And, it, and I wish I would have explicitly said something like that. Yeah, because now I read in the forecast in the spring, like it always calls out Stairs Gulch and other places where glide avalanches can happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, that's, that's really cool that you keep a notebook of all of your notes about the days. I bet there's some fascinating data in there for climate change too. We can, we'll talk about that later. But um, is that something that you recommend for like recreationalists to do as well? Oh, I don't know if you necessarily need to do that. I'm the compulsive type and <laughs> and that's, you know, I do it for a living. So I need to, you know, keep a record in case uh, I ever get called into court or something like that. So I always, you know, try to document things well. Yeah, I mean, from my side, I remember Martin's friend was in town from Alaska and I can imagine, I think they got a really early start. They did. And, you know, on my avalanche advisory, I said, you know, very few people are going out because it's not supportable snow. It's horrible out there. But, you know, if you really need to get out there, be sure to get, you know, get up there early and get home early. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely be out of the mountains by by noon, you know. Uh, And so that, you know, I'm just thinking people are out just backcountry skiing or something like that. But in Stairs Gulch, you have what we call glide avalanches. So the entire snowpack kind of slides like a glacier on the surface underneath, the rock slabs in this case. Sometimes it's in, on grassy slopes. But they slide really, really slowly like a glacier, inching along until they just catastrophically release and this whole slab comes down at once. 
And they're the only kind of avalanche that can come down in the middle of the night with no provocation. In fact, there's a slight preference for them coming down in the night because uh, they think that when the snow surface freezes, it actually creates a little a slab on top, which makes it more brittle. And when that slab cracks, it's enough of a jolt to make them come down. So glide avalanches are a different kind of animal altogether. We, get, we don't get a whole lot of them in Utah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go to a place like Japan or uh, on the West Coast, and they're all over the place or in Alaska. But in Utah, they only occur like in, in Broads Fork and Stairs Gulch, occasionally in Carter Fork. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think at the time, they were the first glide avalanche, avalanche victims in the U.S., if I remember correctly. Yeah, the first and last, as far as I know. It was a really rare kind of avalanche, especially for Utah. Um, so when we talk about AVI safety, like what are the more common types of avalanches that cause accidents and fatalities? Well, it's usually dry slab avalanches. Almost all of them are dry slab avalanches. Um, but getting back to the glide avalanche again, so they, they did everything right. They knew enough to go up in the dead of night with their headlamps and they, you know, wanted to summit and, uh, and be down by noon. So, um, you know, normally that's a great way to go. Um, they did everything right. But that thing just released in the middle of the night, you know, probably half that face came down on top of them. Mm -hmm. So they were on their way up. It took us a few days to figure out whether they were going up or coming down. You know, after, you know, we were able to check their packs and, and so on and, you know, what they had with them. And then after I walked to the top and looked at the tracks in the top, I, um, there was some tracks that we could see. Um, when I saw the tracks, they came out of Broad's Fork. They didn't come upstairs. So I couldn't see their tracks up on top. Hmm. So anyway, all that put together, you know, I'm pretty sure they were, well, were positive that they were going up at the time because the way they were dressed and what was in their pack and so on. Right. That's so interesting. So it was just a tragic, tragic accident, you know, two doctors, two friends. Yeah. And just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yeah, it it affected me a lot, just like it did your family. And I spent a lot of hours, you know, talking with your dad and with Ida and I went up there with them as well and and so on. And uh wow. Yeah. It was really hard. Um so were you, you weren't with the crew who recovered with the search and rescue crew? No, it was the it was the sheriff's uh, office that runs the search and rescue crew. So the people that went out there, and according to my notes, it was Gary Banks and um, Alan Erdahl, I think, um, were the two people that went up there. Uh, so we usually don't go in on the rescue because we're not, um, you know, we don't have pagers and, you know, run off in the dead of night. So we usually come in afterwards to do the official investigation. Mm -hmm. So um, to to look at the avalanche part of it, you know, what happened and why. So we can have it in our report. And then our report is included with the sheriff's report. And a lot of times when we're the only ones that go in, we're also the coroners. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, have to take pictures and take notes and everything like that. So, um, so in this case, I was just there looking at the avalanche part of it. And the day afterwards, I went up there right away and took photos from across the way. And it was still warm. There was still glide avalanches coming down. I could see where it came from. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, I didn't dare get close to it at all. And, um, and it, was, it took, I don't know, five days later until it froze up enough that I felt enough courage to walk up into that, to the maw, that giant dragon. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, if I remember correctly, when you went and took us to the spot where his body was recovered, it was quite a deep hole that they found him. Like, I think he was buried like 10 feet deep or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember being, and it was really close to the road because we were all coming from Minnesota and we were just in our streetwear. And I think, I remember it wasn't too far of a walk to get to it. No, they got washed down to near the road Yeah, from a 4,000 vertical foot avalanche path. This it's, thing was huge. It's in, it was insane to see the power of it. And then have you been involved in other body recovery efforts? Yeah. So, um, un unfortunately, 
you know, I'm not part of the rescue team because we're, you know, yeah. in my job, we're not supposed to be part of the rescue team. So luckily we go in as scientists afterwards to be the natural detectives, figure it out and what, why, when and where, dig the snow profile and do all the snow and avalanche stuff, which is much better than digging out people. Now, so I haven't, you know, dug out too many people, uh, you know, just, just a couple where I, you know, was the one that found them. And then I've been on rescues when the rescue crew were there, when um, I'm, you know, helping them with the probe line and we're getting people out that way, the ones that the dogs find and so on. But I don't think I'd want to be on the rescue team where you're always dealing with, you know, with that. It's just, it's just not a way to, good way to spend your life. I know. I mean, I think about the mental health aspects of that and I feel like there's a lot of unaddressed PTSD amongst people who work in that industry. I mean, I just think for myself, like still talking about it now, it's been how, I think that was 2001, right? 2001. So it's been almost 20 years and it still is like, my heart is pound. Like it's, it's hard to talk about. It's not, yeah, it's really uncomfortable to talk about. And I wasn't even there on the front line. So um, it's a tough thing. I appreciate you talking about it with me because it helps me to process my feelings and emo- continue grieving and mourning. You know, it's good for me to talk about these things too, because because I, you know, I just realized a few years ago I really haven't dealt with the post traumatic stress that I really probably should have dealt with before. I thought I had, and I, you know, I I've been to counselors and gone through a lot of the sessions and. And done, you know, quite a bit of work in the past because I've been, you know, on a lot of bad wrecks. And I used to be a rescue ranger in the Tetons as well and and did some rescue work in Glacier National Park, the Park Service. So, um, so I, you know, I've been around a lot. I've seen a lot of bad things. And so, but I was giving an avalanche talk um, to a lot of EMTs just a couple of years ago. And I could just barely make it through that talk. My heart was beating and pounding. And I thought, what is going on here? I've never been nervous for an avalanche talk in my life, but I just had a, you know, and and when I was talking about it, I was bringing up all these different rescues that I was part of and kind of letting everybody know what kind of things to expect when they get there. And, you know, it was hard. And afterwards, you know, the next talk was a psychiatrist getting up talking about PSTD and how we should all get treated. And I realized, whew, I'm not done with this. <laughs> I still have some work to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the big healing points for me, I think, was going back to ski Stairs Gulch after 15 years after he was killed, um, just to be up there and to see what he was trying to do. And that was a, it was weirdly a healing moment for me. But about seven years ago, one of my other best friends was killed in an avalanche. Liz Daly was killed in uh, Patagonia in South America. And we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of her death. And and it's been seven years since she passed away, but it's still, it's just so raw in my, it's the wound is still so deep. It's, it's going to take a lifetime to process the loss for sure. I know. And I, I was counting them up this morning, as a matter of fact, writing down um, all of the friends that I've had who've died in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I have eight um, pretty, pretty, some of them were very close friends, um, but um, who've died in the mountains. And the mountains are dangerous places, you know, when we play in the mountains, you know. And, um, you know, I was talking with, uh, you, know, you know, Steve Nyman from Utah, who's a U.S. ski team racer, one of the top downhillers in the world. And his wife, um, Charlotte Motes, I was uh, interviewing both of the, doing video interviews of both of them. Um, what was that, about three or four years ago, I did a video for the uh, Avalanche Safety video for the U.S. ski team and interviewed a lot of the a- accidents or avalanche, the um, athletes. So I was talking with Charlotte Motes and she lived in Jackson for a long time and is a, you know, one of the top free ride skiers or was anyway, and living in Jackson for as long as uh, she did. Um, she had 41, as I recall, friends who had died in the mountains. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd have, that's the most I've ever heard of, I think. 
Yeah, I have a running list going and I think I'm several dozen now. I need to get an exact an exact number, but um I don't want to get an exact number. I don't want to keep adding to the list cuz it's not fun to do. Um but yeah, Charlotte's an incredible skier and Steve too. I and you, you have like so from that first interaction I've had with you to reading your books, staying alive in avalanche terrain and then avalanche essentials. You're like the one of the most one of the biggest experts in the United States about snow science and avalanches. And so I was curious, how did you get into doing what you do? Well, let's see. I was, I get that question a lot and, and I'm a little bit different than a lot of people. I was sort of born into it. My um, father was a, you know, he was a skier um, and taught me to ski when I was two years old. And he was on the volunteer ski patrol for his whole life in Missoula, Montana. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he learned about avalanches in 1964. He went to a avalanche class uh, taught by Dr. John Montaigne, um, who's one of the uh, United States leading avalanche experts uh, at the time and, and was, and, and he taught at Montana State University, the first uh, uh, university avalanche course in the country. But my father took a class from him in 1964 when I was 10 years old. And so he came home really excited about avalanches and taught, and told me all about them and taught me how slabs work and everything. And so he was really excited about it. And I wasn't a particularly good student at the time, but, but I remember it and, and being fascinated by avalanches, you know, from that young age. So I kind of grew up around it. We didn't have a whole lot of avalanches in Missoula at the ski areas where, you know, at Snowball where I um, skied all the time. And I pretty much lived at Snowball Ski Area. That's awesome. I grew up as a ski racer, um, you know, since I was, oh, I don't know, when I started uh, fourth or fifth grade and then, you know, raced, uh, uh, you know, three years on the junior national ski team and then a few more years on the U.S. development team and on the NCAA circuit race, race for our university and everything like that. So that was my first love. And when I finished with that, then I took up with avalanches, you know, because I'd always been fascinated by them. And I started skiing the backcountry more and more when I quit racing because I got really bored of just free skiing at the resorts, you know. So I was in the backcountry. And my father kept telling me, you need to take an avalanche class from Dr. John Montaigne because you're going to get yourself in trouble. And he knew what kind of avalanche dragons lived in the backcountry, you know. (laughs) And so he kept telling me that over and over. And so, uh, and and my family moved to Bozeman um, around that time. Uh, My mother was a... Uh, university professor and a lawyer, and she so she um, got a uh, a position at Montana State University teaching. So she moved the family there, and my younger brothers all graduated from um, um, high school in Bozeman. So I, you know, kind of followed them to Bozeman, and I, I and I had finished my undergrad degree in geology at, in Missoula, and then started my master's degree uh, at Montana State, which I wanted to do anyway. And of course, that's where John Montaigne teaches. And so then I got to finally meet the famous John Montaigne. And he'd, he'd heard of me too, because he follows ski racing a lot. And so we just hit it off right away. He became my thesis advisor and I did my master's thesis on avalanches, uh, avalanche related thesis. And I, and I worked, uh, started ski patrolling in the Bridger Bowl Ski Patrol. And, um, after that, took over the avalanche program at Big Sky Ski Area and then worked for the Alaska Avalanche Center um, and then got the directorship job came open in Utah in 1986. And then I got hired for that. And I knew that that was probably the best job that an avalanche geek could ever have. And so I just, because um, there's only at the time, I think there was only maybe eight of these jobs in the entire country. And I got extraordinarily lucky to be hired into that job. And I just realized, well, <laughs> I'm going to hang on to this thing to the bitter end because this is as good as it gets in the avalanche world. That's so cool. So you were the Utah Avalanche Center director for almost 30 years, correct? That's right. 
And I feel like the UAC is one of the premier like avalanche forecasting centers in the U.S. Would you say? Yeah, I yeah. think so, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I feel like whenever I travel to other places and I read the forecast, I'm like, oh, why can't they write them like the UAC does? Like, I feel like the UAC does a fantastic job taking this sometimes difficult to understand world of snow science and making it really easy to read and understand and know what to do and what not to do. Yeah, and I hear that over and over where people go other places and come back and say, wow. I didn't realize we had it so good in Utah. Everybody else's, their you know their advisories just aren't as good. So anyway, um, uh, so thanks for the compliment. Yeah. But I took took over from um, Dwayne Bowles, who started the the Utah Avalanche. It was originally called the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center. We simplified the name a little bit about halfway through. Um, but he was one of my mentors in at, uh, in Bozeman. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, he taught me a lot about avalanches, and went, and he started the Utah Avalanche Center in 1980. And uh, of course, I go visit him all the time. And I was actually dating his daughter, <laughs> and so you know, if things turned out a little bit different, Dwayne would have been my father-in-law, you know. <laughs> but it didn't quite work out that way. Another story. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd go visit him in Utah. And the, the first visit in Utah, I saw what he did. He had free season passes to all the ski areas, and he would be out, uh, you know, digging snow pits and looking at avalanches all day long and putting out forecasts. And I just thought, whoa, this is the job that I want. <laughs> and I, I finally landed that job uh, six years later. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And you were really on the forefront. I mean, I feel like even when you took your first AVI course, was there much avalanche education in the U.S. at that time? Well, no. Yeah. Um, avalanche education started at Alta in, in Utah, uh, at La Chapelle. Okay. To just go back to the beginning. Avalanche science and the study of avalanches uh, started at Alta, at the Alta Study Center, right after World War II. Monty Atwater uh, was on the 10th Mountain Division um, in Europe, that, um, the uh, soldiers that fought in the, the mountains during World War II. So they were kind of a club that came home and started a lot of the ski areas in the West and knew about avalanches from their training in Europe. So it was Monty Atwater. Um, Dr. John Montaigne, that uh, was my mentor, and a lot of other people um, who, who, like I say, started other ski areas. And so uh, Ed LaChapelle joined Monty Atwater um, shortly, and, and Ed LaChapelle has a master's in physics, so he was the person that should have been there all along. So he was the grandfather of American avalanche science in the United States, and that all started at Alta. So he taught classes starting at Alta, and, and I drew a little family chart of the avalanche knowledge for the United States and Canada um, a few years ago, where everything starts with Ed LaChapelle and Monty Atwater, you know, at the top, mm -hmm. the family tree, the great-grandfathers, and, and so everything branches out from there. And uh, so then Montaigne started teaching about it, and they taught avalanches in a really dry way, a science-based approach, you know, and, you know, they were scientists, they, so they taught the physics and chemistry and everything, but the real avalanche instructors, the best avalanche instructors in the country actually were in Alaska, so Doug Fessler, he taught himself avalanches, and then he, you know, learned a lot from Ed LaChapelle, because Ed LaChapelle uh, lived in Alaska for a while, so um, he became a, a really, really good avalanche instructor. So uh, that was my first backcountry avalanche forecasting job is working in Alaska for them, for Doug Fessler and his wife, Jill Fredston. So Jill Fredston ran the avalanche center. Doug Fessler taught these avalanche classes. He was the state trooper for the state of Alaska. And um, they were fabulous avalanche educators. And their teaching methods have spread out through the whole country because they, they used... Um, really, really entertaining uh, style of teaching with lots of hands-on models, you know, and, and they had a lot of good uh, teaching 
instructors that came in and taught them how to teach these classes. And they're really entertaining and they have lots of metaphors and have had great stories and that taking their classes was just endlessly entertaining. That's awesome. So what are some of the top takeaways then from those classes? Well, um, so they taught me how to teach. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they came up with the tilt board, you know, where you put flour and sugar on a tilt board and tip it up and create an avalanche on a board like that. And they built avalanches out of cardboard boxes and Dixie cups and things like that. So I came and, you know, on and on, all these great teaching methods. So I came to Utah and brought their methods with me to Utah. So, so Doug and Jill probably uh, have most of the credit mm-hmm. for this. And so I, you know, of course, I put my own spin on it too. And, um, and so, you know, and I had taken a lot of writing courses and public speaking courses in college as well. And so I just kind of took the um, latest, um, uh, you, you know, the most accepted practices from writing, from public speaking, from teaching, and tried to apply all those to our, our avalanche classes in Utah, plus to the avalanche advisories. So, you know, when I first got to Utah, the avalanche advisories were really boring. You know, they were about a paragraph long and written in passive voice and really scientific. And, you know, they would just put you instantly to sleep. So I got here and said, okay, this is going to change. <laughs> so I made them, you know, personal. Yeah, I made them first person. I told stories. I put humor in there, you know. And you know, Brad Micklejohn, who was here, you know, when I got here, was uh, really, uh, really smart. He got his degree from Dartmouth, and uh, uh, and so he was a very good educator and a very good public speaker. And it was almost a competition to see who could make the forecasts the most inventive, the funniest. Um, the most creative, and he he and I had this creative synergy between the two of us, and so he and I pretty much built the Avalanche Center the way it, it is today, and so um, so that's how it got started. And people really liked the forecast. We made them longer and longer, and told stories in there. And we got a little carried away, I think, for a while. Had to kind of tone it down after a while, but sure fun while it lasted. (laughs) I loved reading your forecasts. I thought they were so clever. And I mean, I, I think you'd write about like the sleeping dragons when we had a a bear. You got to use metaphors and analogies, you know, that's, that's good writing, you know? Yeah. And then, um, when you'd be talking about springtime, you just had some, and you had a lot of stories from maybe your mother or grandmother metaphors (laughs) from your, yeah. Like little things she would say, I can't remember a good example, but yeah, your forecasts were amazing. And I, I, I think that that is a really important yeah, piece of snow safety and snow science and making this study, the scientific study of it, like applicable to influencing people's behavior. Yeah. And I also started video because I, I was, I've always been a photographer. My father was a amateur photographer too and taught me. Um, so I've always had a camera um, my whole life. So, you know, I came into the job as a photographer and used to make my living as a photographer for a while. So I, you know, introduced still photos into it, um, which is important. And then when video came along, uh, I started, you know, it was an easy thing to get into video. So not longer, long after I arrived in Utah, I started just carrying a video camera with me everywhere I went and videoing everything. And I thought, Oh, I'm just going to make, put all this knowledge into a video. And, you know, um, I had no idea how hard videos are. I mean, it takes a production company to do a video and I was trying to do all this by myself, Mm -hmm. but you know, ignorance is bliss. You just dive on in and hope for the best. But I made it like an hour long avalanche education video called winning the avalanche game. And that was kind of the standard video that people used in avalanche classes throughout the country for a long time. And then we of course did started the know before you go program and videos for that and yeah and so on. And That's, it kind of went from there. Well it's really a legacy that you've created. Now the know before you go series is like TGR, like Warren Miller level production. It's incredible. 
I know it's amazing. And, you know, adding Trent Meisenheimer Mm -hmm. to the team was a great, (laughs) a great find. I I met Trent when he was pretty darn young and uh, Larry Dunn, the head of the National Weather Service, where our office is located, said, told me about Trent because he knew his father. He skied with his father a lot and says, hey, this kid Trent is really smart and he's really keen about avalanches and someday he's going to work for the Avalanche Center. And when I met Trent, I realized what Larry was talking about and, real, and realized the potential and just kind of took him under my wing and nurtured him along. And now he's a forecaster, but he's an amazing videographer and, and editor, especially an editor. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of these videos, I do a lot of the shooting and he does a lot of the editing. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really incredible. It seems like there's a lot of mentorship, like in your journey and then with you passing it along. And so how, what role do you think mentorship plays in, in sharing life saving knowledge about snow and avalanches and backcountry skiing? Well, historically the mentorship was really important. Uh, avalanches were always taught through a master apprentice relationship because you kind of need, you can't really learn about them in the classroom as well. You need it. You need to do it in person. You need to get your hands dirty and get in the snow and have somebody show you these things and take you around. And uh, so I know my mentors were very important to me. People like Doug Richmond, who first started teaching me about avalanches professionally at Bridger Bowl. He was been a patroller at Bridger Bowl and he's still there. He was a patrol director for a long time, and uh, he was really important avalanche mentor. And then Dwayne Bowles, as I said before, I was a important mentor, Dr. John Montaigne. And uh, so those were the, the main ones. Uh, and then I've tried to mentor people when I can. But the, the trouble with my job, at, you know, when you're the director, you're so busy all the time. I'm just slammed. Mm-hmm. working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, for 30 years. And a lot of times I just don't have the time to get out and ski with people. Yeah, You know, I wish that you and I, Carolyn, could have skied together more. We got out a couple of times and it was great. Um, maybe it was more than that. Uh, but I really enjoyed the time we spent. Together. I wish we could have done it once a week. You know, you would have been an ideal field partner. And But I just didn't have the time, you know. Yeah. Well, we still can go skiing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you're talking about the mentorship, one of the things that I I was curious about is as a woman in backcountry skiing and in the snow science world, there's not very many other women. Like when I took my AVI 3 course, I was the only woman with 19 men for a five-day course. And do you think that not having those like women mentors? Is that like, I guess my, I'm curious, like if you have any ideas on how we can make backcountry skiing and avalanche and snow safety more inclusive for women and also for people of color and people like unrepresented groups. I agree with you hundred percent. And uh, I've always, throughout my career, I've always tried to, well, we've always had a woman working for the Utah Avalanche Center. Um, and, you know, Sue Ferguson was a director right before I was Mm -hmm. uh, an amazing woman from, uh, from Washington. She had her PhD in geophysics and was an ex ski racer. And she was one of those real maddening people that everything she does, she's really, really good at, you know, Um, amazing. And uh, no one can keep up with her. So she was, she was real good to have. That's awesome. But we never got to work together. And then soon after I started working here, we hired Evelyn Lees very quickly after I arrived. And she's been wonderful. So she's taught a lot of the classes. Yeah, I need to get out with her. And Carol Silliberti, I hired her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the women that we've hired at the Avalanche Center, in, in my opinion, have been the best forecasters and the best workers. Mm-hmm. They really get things done. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if there was more qualified ones out there it would be great and we've tried to hire every every ones that we could find that's really cool that you were you know thinking about hiring women and i just can't help but think it would be better if there were more because i'm always searching for like uh you know someone to mentor and then also someone 
to be my mentee or I would be their mentee. They would be my mentor. But it just seems like the really qualified women guides or avalanche instructors, they're so busy. They're in such high demand that like you were saying, they don't really have time to take on that role as a mentor. So yeah, I'm always thinking about, especially for people of color, because the like women, you know, we're a small percentage, but at least there are women in this world. But I see, I can't think of any of, there's just so few people of color in, in snow sports in general, and especially in snow science. And so, yeah, maybe I need to think more about how I could mentor someone else and, and invite them in. Because sometimes I think that's, it's as simple as that, having the invitation. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people would love to learn from you. Yeah. Maybe I'll set up like Caroline's camp for a week or two. I mean, but I don't want to do it in a patronizing way either. Like I want to do it and respect people for where they're at. Um, not as like a, yeah. So I, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. Nikki Champion works for the Avalanche Center now. Yeah, so I need to so we've kept our string of, of having at least one woman. And I wish there was more, like I say, and, and more, more, People of color. I've, I've known in my entire lifetime only exactly one black avalanche scientist, the only Who, one. Who's that? Bill Harrison. Okay, cool. And he, well. he worked for Cold Reason, Regions Research for most of his career, but he, he lives uh, at Alta still. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Cool. I need to look him up. A really nice guy. Cool. That would be great. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him because. Yeah, there's just so few, and I really feel like I want to do what I can to elevate their voices and just to make skiing more welcoming for people of color and other underrepresented groups. Um, so this winter with COVID, I can't help but think there's going to be so many more people getting into the backcountry. And so, what are some of your, like, what are some of the things that you would like people to know? Yeah, that scares me. I think this winter there's going to be a lot of newbies in the backcountry because all summer, everywhere we've gone, it's been absolutely packed. And then you go out there and the people that you're meeting are completely different than the people you usually meet in the backcountry. They all look like they just walked out of REI, you know, all geared up for the first time. And they're making all the classic mistakes. That worries me because, you know, through my career, um, it's always the new kids on the block who are getting themselves in trouble. Uh, when you know snowboarders came along, when it became popular, they were getting killed at a higher rate. And especially when snowmobiles came along, they were just getting slaughtered. And you know those numbers wrote, rose very, very quickly. And then we really put in a huge effort to try to educate um, snowmobilers and go riding with snowmobilers and become part of the community really quickly. And it's been very successful, but one, and then once you learn, then those numbers kind of back off. So, so that's the crux is getting people who don't know anything about avalanches kind of past that hump. And so um, I don't know how it's, how it's going to work. I mean, you approach each user group very differently. So someone who doesn't know anything about avalanches, you approach them completely different than someone who, who's kind of squared away, but they're just um, risk takers or something mm -hmm. like that. So with people uh, that don't know anything, you have to start with the very, very basics and just start, okay, you know, this is what avalanche terrain looks like. Okay, this is what avalanches are. They're a slab. This is how they work. You, they're triggered by the victim or somebody in the victim's party. They don't just come down and, and kill you when you have bad luck or something like that. We trigger avalanches. And just kind of the basic, basic knowledge. So I'm not sure how it's, uh, it's going to happen. I'm glad that I'm retired now, so I don't have to be the person <laughs> responsible for it. So Mark Staples and the crew are going to have to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Um, one of my friends who is trying to get more into backcountry skiing, she told me that the AVI courses are already all filled up for the year. The level That's good. Ones. Yeah, it is. But it's, it's you know, the end of September right now. And I just can't help but think like there's so much demand. So what other resources would you recommend? I think we spoke earlier about the Know Before You Go video. Well, I mean, I guess I can answer this question and hype you. Know Before You Go video and then read Bruce's books. Staying Alive in Avalanche Train and Avalanche Essentials. Yeah, those those are both good, especially by the books, yeah. By the books. What other things? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I don't make much money on these books. It's such a small niche market. Um, 
So, so I say that in jest to abide the books, but, but it's actually doing pretty well. I, I just had uh, the Russian translation of the Staying Alive and Avalanche Train arrived. So it's been translated into Spanish and Italian and Japanese and Russian, I think, uh, so far. Would you say that's a good substitute or like a good, would you see it accompanying or substituting a class? A- accompanying. accompanying. So, so start out watching the videos. The know before you vid- go, know before you go video, like you say, is a, is a good place to start. Um, we made a video for the U.S. ski team, which is another good one. It's the mm. brass video, um, B-R-A-S-S, but it's called Off Piste. You can find that on Vimeo. Um, so, uh, and then the No Before You Go program has some online tutorials that Paul Daigle put together. Those are good. Go through those. Um, there may be some other resources out there that um, – I'm not aware of as well, but there's a lot of things online that yeah. people can do if, if the avalanche classes are full or in addition to the avalanche classes. Yeah. 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 And then, I mean, what other things I would say, what advice do you have for managing the human factors? Because what I've seen in my career is that often the people, the mistakes that cause severe accidents or fatalities are really well, often it's like expert groups who go out and they succumb to these human factors and they make a mistake and then another mistake and then it ends up in an accident. And so how can people who do have their baseline of avalanche education do better managing human factors? Yeah, the so-called human factors are are a difficult, I think it's a really difficult avalanche problem. I'm an avalanche scientist. I'm not a social scientist. So I'm getting, you know, well out of my area of expertise. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, But the people who do write about human factors, you know, have some suggestions. I'm just learning about some of those. And I go over these in detail in my book and and some of the videos that we're talking about. Yeah. So just just learning about them is is a good um, first step. But then they're so automatic that you don't even realize that you're doing them. So I, I'm always preaching the system is the solution. So you operate your whole backcountry day, everything you do on this step-by-step system. And I go through this in my book, you know, start with pre-trip planning and then start with, you know, how do you communicate with your partners on the way and how do you make decisions of where to go to, to start with? How do you choose the terrain? And then as you're traveling along, looking at everything, you know, the best sign of avalanches are, guess what? Avalanches. So if you see other avalanches, then that's a bullseye clue. And that a lot of people miss that because it's so obvious Yeah. and so on. So, um, yeah, just paying attention and knowing what to pay attention to. But we're all humans. We all get distracted really easily. We're all subject to this long list of human factors, you know. We make take more risks in familiar terrain. And when there's other people around to encourage us and and where it's kind of a competition going on, that pushes people too far to do things riskier than they, they normally would. Um, you know, if somebody takes out a video camera and is going to post something on Instagram, everybody just suddenly starts taking more risks and so on. And then the whole communication part is really, really important. Somebody realizes, you know, I don't like this, but they're just afraid to speak up. That's a really, really hard problem. So I guess, I mean, my main advice is just slow down. So as soon as you see something that maybe you don't quite like or something's confusing, slow down and just think it through. And so not using that system one part of your brain, those instant um, uh, intuitive decisions to to switch into your system two, you know, the thinking part of your brain, the cognitive part where you do some reasoning yeah. and you say, wait a second, the avalanche report said this and that terrain, oh, now that's a 35 degree slope. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, and it just snowed two feet last night. Ding, 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 ding. So you kind of set these little, Whoa, doggy lines, as they've mm-hmm. been called, you know, yeah. when you cross a certain line, a voice says in your head, whoa, doggy, and stop, slow down, 
get your group together, talk about it, saying, okay, what's the plan? Yeah. What are we going to do today? Well, that communication piece is so, so important. And that's one of the things, even with my just day-to-day planning, like I ski in the backcountry, I tour so much that sometimes we just make our plans really casually on text messages. But I've been trying to make an effort with my partners to be like, hey, let's just hop on a group phone call for five minutes, 10 minutes, and just talk through the plan because it can be really difficult over text messages to to communicate as much as you need to. And then, yeah, just making sure people are working together. I mean, I see that happening all the time. And the other thing you spoke to is back when I started my career, we used to call it Kodak Courage because the first photo shoots I did were actually on film. But now with the age of Instagram and GoPros, I mean, I've seen it for myself how much my urge to get the shots, you know, how much that changes my willingness to take risks. And it's something I set that GoPro to record and I'm like, I gotta charge this, you know? And I'm really glad that I have, like my husband, he's uh, he's always like, hey, don't let, th-, he reminds me all the time, don't let the cameras change how you ski this line. Like just do what you would do if it was just us. And I'm, I'm so grateful because, and I try to be that voice in other people's ear too, but I constantly need a reminder of that, you know, to just ski as if there's no cameras rolling because it's it's just it it changes so quickly in your brain. It's like a switch when the camera's rolling. That's exactly right. And people like you, the high end athletes, that's the human factor that you have to worry about. Yeah, you know, probably the the main one. And it and it's huge because you know you look at the graph of the rise of social media. Um, it coincides exactly with the rapid rise of, of a lot of these avalanche accidents to the higher end users. And uh, luckily, it's flattened out quite a bit. You know, if you look at the last 10 years, even the last 20 years of avalanche accidents in the United States, it's fairly flat. So that's, that's good. But, um, but the high end uh, people, the people most affected by the Instagram mentality, those rows, those people rose at the same time they did. It's very well correlated. That's super interesting. Yeah. Another thing I always use in the backcountry for decision-making is I always think, what would Bruce Tremper do? Or, <laughs> or I often think if someone was writing up an accident or fatality report, like how would this sound? Like our decision-making. And I think about it that way. Or like if something happened, like how would I explain the decision making to to someone else's family or friends? Or if it were me, like how would it be explained and how would my death be remembered? And it's grim, but it helps me to slow down and make more conservative decisions. Like I'm still really afraid of backcountry skiing. Like it terrifies me. Um, but I'm practiced I've practiced a lot so over the years. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, those are other human factors that we didn't get to. So, so that's an, another good um, way to do it. And that's called the, doing a post-mortem. So you think about what tomorrow's head, the newspaper headlines are going to say um, about your accident, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, leading extreme skier and avalanche expert dies in avalanche, says, you know, Carolyn Gleick. <laughs> and so, you know, you got to think about that yeah. in that terms. The other way to do it is to do what's called a Ulysses contract. In other words, you make a deal and you say, okay, and you're on the car ride up, you agree with everybody, all right, it's a considerable danger today, so we are definitely going to avoid these slopes, all the north through east facing slopes above this altitude, steeper than you know, 30 degrees. Okay, that's our agreement for today. We'll mm-hmm. avoid that terrain, um, but we can go to this terrain. Yeah. And so that's your Ulysses contract, as it's called. Um, and, and guides do this all the time. They'll, they'll do the guide meetings in the mornings and evenings and make their list of red lights, places you'll never go, the green lights, the places that you're, you can safely guide, and then the yellow light trains that maybe you'll guide, go guide in there if you know what you're seeing is uh, probably going to allow it, and then you agree with the other your other compatriots that um, that you can probably do it. 
Yeah. Yeah. But I just can't help but think with COVID now, people aren't going to be ride sharing as much. And so there's less and less time. And with our short attention span for communication, you know, people get out of the car at the trailhead and they just want to go like people are frothing. And so, yeah, I think what you said, just slowing down and having that time for communication and then nailing the basics and having that system that you always do. Like with me and my partners, like we always do beacon checks at the trailhead. And I make sure that my partners have all their AVI gear. And there's been so many times that people have showed up and someone forgets their beacon. And I mean, not so many, there's been a few times, but it's one of those things where it's like, no go, like we're going to go home and get it. We can go for our tour in another hour. Like the snow will still be here because if something were to happen and they didn't have a beacon, how stupid would we look? Yeah. Good point. I always yeah. carry a spare beacon in the car. Oh, that's a good idea. Because happens so many times, you know? And batteries too. I need to start doing yeah, yeah. that. Because, you know, people pull out their beacon and you do a check and they go, huh, it was working last week. Yeah. But that's, any, yeah, that's the only way you're going to know when it's not working. Any other tips you have um, for gear or layering or um, just even favorite snacks you like to eat in the backcountry? I'm sure you have tons of tips, but yeah, maybe like a few of them. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. <laughs> like gloves, for instance, if you're going out to digs, well, you just gave us a great piece of gear advice. If you have the resources and you have access to a spare avalanche beacon to keep one in your car, like that's a great piece of advice. I mean, another thing I want to start doing this winter for myself is to start carrying radios more frequently because just going back to the importance of communication and how difficult it is when it's a crazy powder day and you know, you're spread out just to make sure you're able to communicate super easily with your partners. That's really important. And I'm glad you brought up the thing about COVID and because we're not riding in the same cars anymore, which we're going to make the trailheads really <laughs> crowded. Yeah. Uh, so that makes communication difficult because that's where I did all my best communicating with my partners is all the way up. We're talking about, okay, where, where should we go? That's the the most difficult question for any daily, daily tour is figure out where are we going to go today? Because, um, you know, you have to keep this big, huge three-dimensional sculpture in your mind all the time so you can think, all right, you know, this is south-facing, this is this steepness, what's above us, you know, is there any train traps there, and so on. And, and it's a very, very difficult decision. It is. And what, that, once you agree on the, where to go, then most of the hard decisions are done for the day. And I think that's one of the things I see people rush through so quickly and they're just not as intentional about route planning as I'd like to see people be. Like I think so much of when you look at accidents, again, you retrace the mistakes and it starts right from the get-go with that pre-trip communication that needs to happen. Exactly. Um, so thinking like, now thinking about other tips for people, like for me, if I knew I was going to be talking to people at the trailhead, what I always do is like, I have the big puffy and I start with that. If I'm going to be talking to my partners, like at the trailhead, instead of in the car, I have like the big puffy in the car so we can have our little talk. And then I take it off right before we start touring. Yeah, you know, exactly. To keep warm while we're all talking. And yeah, that's probably the most valuable piece of advice that you just came up with. You always need to have an excuse so that you can slow the group down to yeah. stop and talk about things. And that's one of the main reasons I dig snow pits is because um, I'll go along and, uh, and I'll stop, go off the side and start digging a snow pit. And then everybody in my group that comes along, they're always interested in what I'm finding in the snow pit. So it's a natural place to stop and say, okay, what's the plan for today? Where should we go? Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about it. Because, you know, you and I go out with a lot of very aerobically fit people, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and Joe Gnarly Powder Pig, who's uh, training for the, the powder keg, um, uh, jumps out of the car and just blasts off and you don't ever see him until you get up to your destination. Mm -hmm. That's a really dangerous situation. That is a really dangerous. I see that happen so much. And it's almost like the point that I, if there's people like that, sometimes I'm very cautious about the days that I tour with them even. Like there's exactly like you have to be really intentional about the crew that you go with. And if you're not communicating well with certain people, like 
pick new people because there's enough people, you know, there's plenty of people to pick from, especially in a place like Salt Lake City. Like you can always find a new touring partner if you feel like you're not communicating well with someone. Yeah. And for me, I'm very risk averse, which you wouldn't think spending, you know, <laughs> my entire career as an avalanche forecaster and, you know, a, um, a, you know, a, a rock climber and rescue ranger and stuff like that. But I'm really risk averse. And so my, I have kind of a, my Ulysses contract that I make with myself is I don't ever ski on a slope steeper than 30 degrees. I mean, period, unless that I can prove to myself close to 100% certain that that thing is not going to slide because I don't mm. ever want to be in another avalanche ever again. I've been in two in my life early in my career. Don't ever want to be there. They're totally terrifying. Mm. And, um, you know, the embarrassment alone would kill me. <laughs> so, uh, so I just don't go over 30 degrees unless it's really, really safe, you know, like a low danger day or, or maybe a moderate danger day on certain slopes. If it's considerable level three, I mean, I don't even think about it, yeah. but a lot of people aren't like that. There's a lot of hardcore people, you know, it's level three, considerable danger. And they're just zooming off with their video camera to jump off cornices and, mm-hmm. you know, in a car to fork. And that's not the time or place to do that. Do you ski with an airbag? Um, I have an airbag. I own one, um, but I almost never use it because I'm usually not going to a place where I'm going to need it. And it seems like every time I'm grabbing that thing, I'm thinking, wait a second, why do I need this? Why am I going there? And, you know, maybe I should rethink my plans. I do feel like I it changes how I ski slightly when I have the airbag. It does. It does. Yeah. It makes me more bold, and that worries me. me. It worries now, me too. If they make them a little bit lighter weight, mm-hmm. um, I think I would probably carry it with me all the time. And they're getting there. Yeah, they're getting there. I brought a carbon canister back from Europe two years ago, and I so want one. <laughs> yeah. So the new I have an Ortovox pack, and with the carbon canister, it's quite light. So I carry mine, you know, especially in those December, January, February, you know, those early months of winter where we have um, just a more unconsolidated snowpack. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of times when I um, probably should uh, be carrying them more. Um, And yeah, I would like to ski with it all the time, actually. Yeah. Um, But I'm getting a little bit lazy in my old age. Yeah, me too. How do you think that climate change is impacting avalanches and snow science? Well, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure if there's any good data on it. Um, but uh, according to you know Jim Steenberg, who's studied a lot, he's seeing that the freezing levels are rising. And we've certainly noticed that. I'm sure you have too, but especially in my career, uh, you know, the freezing levels are going up higher. It's it's raining down. Uh, in the valleys a lot of times when it used to be snowing in the valleys. So, and it's getting warmer. And then the storms are, I've noticed are uh, just like being on the coast. They come in fast and hard. And then when it snows, it's just nuking. And then, and then it'll suddenly stop. And then, so our storms used to be kind of these slow ones where you just got this foof, this powder, just piling up day after day after day and we're seeing much fewer of those storms have you noticed that too yeah i have noticed that and it you know they come in fast and hard the snow's more dense and it's like what you would feel what you experience in washington or something yeah like last winter i'm thinking about my best powder days and it seems like by um, you know, by mid-February, our storms were coming in so much warmer and wetter and like the best powder days were behind us by that point. Um, like, and the other thing now that I live up in Park City that I'm seeing is it just straight up rains here, whereas it used to snow. And the, one of the projections I've read from, from uh, weather and climate scientists is that by 2100, by the year 2100, Park City will lose 100% of their snowpack. It'll just yeah. rain. That's what all the projections say that which is that Steenberg devastating. Has. Yeah. Yeah. And and I really appreciate all the, the 
the work that you've done on, you know, protect our winners. And I, my hat's off to you. Thanks. We're trying. We're continuing. But it's, again, one of those things. It's uh, it's tough for sure. And to quantify it all and to put the data, you know, because you have to have the science behind it. So to get um, just all the data points and then to make it personal and then, yeah, but I think we're making progress and we're influencing um, at we're influencing policy. And the good thing is, is that the kinds of policy changes that we are advocating for that would have a positive effect for climate change. They're also things that would be good for human health, you know, with air quality and and cleaning up our air and water. So um, exactly. Yeah. So it's fun work. Yeah. And, and we all have to do our part. I've had solar panels on our house for the last uh, 12 years or so. And that's provides all of our electricity and that's awesome. We drive our, our Prius everywhere we can. Um, and so on. Thank you. Thank but, you for that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We all need to do our part. Yeah. We all need to keep talking about it too, to make sure that we are leading with science and that, um, our elected officials are also listening to science. So I have a feeling we're going to see some big changes here in these next few years. I mean, we have to, we have to. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. We can't well, wait any longer. Bruce, how can we support you and keep up with you? Um, well, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, I'm retired now, so I guess I don't need too much support. But We'll buy your books. I'll link to those <laughs> in the show notes. Yeah. And then let's get out skiing this winter sometime if you're around. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like I say that a lot and then we never get around to it. But yeah, we'll have to do it. We'll have to do it. I should be around. But right now, I'm not planning any trips. So yeah, good. I, I'm kind of looking forward to it, actually. You know, I love the skiing here. So it would be great yeah, to get out. Me too. All awesome. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was great it's talking to you. It's been a pleasure you. talking yes. with you, as always. Thank you again, and have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Carolyn. Today's Stories from the Skin Track are brought to you in partnership with Backcountry.com. Interestingly enough, the first item ever sold on Backcountry.com was an avalanche beacon out of a garage in Park City, Utah, way back in 1996. For over 20 years, Backcountry has been dedicated to gearing up folks for safe and unforgettable experiences on the skin track. So whether you're thinking about getting into the backcountry to ski this year, or just need to make sure you're adequately prepared with the right gear, the Backcountry gearheads are amazing resources that can help you find exactly what you need. Also, be sure to check out your local Avalanche Forecast Center for additional education and information. Gear and knowledge equals safety and fun for all. Thanks for listening today and stay tuned for the next episode with more stories from the skin track. Special thanks to Avery Sandak for his help with the audio on today's episode. To my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet while recording. And to Jonah Cuddy for the beautiful intro and outro music. If you liked today's episode, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. Until next time.